SAFM. It is 51 after 4 a.m. We're about to get into a conversation around climate change, which is currently under spotlight due to the floods happening in KZN. Now, these floods uh, have caused devastating impact on KwaZulu-Natal as a whole. And experts say uh, this is among the worst crisis caused by floods in the history of the province. Now, to understand how climate change may affect and contribute to this particular disaster, we are joined by Professor, Professor Tafadzwa, who is a climate change and food systems expert at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Good morning, Professor. Good morning, how are you? I am fine, thank you. How are you doing this Easter Monday? Uh, Good, thanks. I would like us to start off the conversation with looking at climate change. What is uh, South Africa's current climate change disposition? Uh. South Africa and Southern Africa's uh, current climate change disposition is quite similar in context. Mm. So in general, what we are looking at is there is a projection for increased temperatures, increased rainfall variability, increased evapotranspiration rates and periods of drought, as well as more intense storms and flooding. In the context of South Africa in particular, we also expect sea level rise, especially for our coastal cities and towns. Mm. And we see Durban bearing the brunt of this particular construct of the climate change that currently exists. What contributed to this development? Uh, so just, just to be specific, this event, we cannot really attribute it directly to climate change because it's a single event. Mm. So we, we attribute it to weather variability in this in this context because we need more events to be able to then objectively say this is climate change related. Uh, in this particular event, it was a weather system that typically forms in the south of South Africa, which is a low pressure system. And naturally, low pressure systems, how they operate is they attract warm air to mm. come into the low pressure system which then gives rise to rainfall. And depending on the movement in the state of the pressure system, the rainfall is usually prolonged. In this particular case, what then intensified it was because of Durban's positioning along the coast, we had warm air coming in from the Indian Ocean, mm. which then intensified the rainfall. Also, the landscape of Durban where you've got a mountain rise as you move from the coast inland, then created a further situation where then the air that was coming from the ocean was rising against the mountains, uh, condensing and forming more rainfall. So it sort of exacerbated that effect. You also consider that geographically, Durban is downstream because most of the rivers, they flow into the ocean, so Deben is downstream. So when there's heavy rainfall, even upstream in the Midlands, that finds its way down towards the coast. So, you know, the weather, the geography and landscape of Deben contributed to that. And then there are other smaller variables, such as people being in high-risk areas that are prone to flooding, mm. uh, the the hilly landscapes where we've got steep slopes in Deben and people living on those steep slopes, 
that are prone to landslides and, and mudslides, uh, and you know the, the rapid urbanisation that is happening, uh, where we've got more concrete surfaces generating more runoff, uh, you know. So all of those factors then came together to create, you know, what what we have now, this disaster. And with this particular uh, weather system, do we have any projections for the future that is, uh, perhaps this week, this month, and perhaps even throughout the year? Well, yes, there are, there are always projections. The South African Weather Service does provide seasonal forecasts. They release them every quarter. Mm. Uh, every three months, they update their seasonal forecast and share it. So we did have a seasonal forecast that was expecting above to above average rainfall. Uh, just prior to the floods, they did issue a warning expecting, you know, uh, the possibility of flooding. Yes. Uh, you know, generally an extreme event in terms of rainfall is when you receive more than 20 millimeters of rain within a 24-hour period over an 8 by 8 kilometer grid. Mm. So they did forecast that there was going to be you know, a risk of flooding because we are looking at 150 millimeters of rainfall over a 24-hour period. However, you know, the forecasts were far exceeded because what was measured in some parts exceeded 300 millimeters, so it was double what was forecast. Uh, even this weekend, you know, that we are just finishing, they had forecasted that, you know, a similar low-pressure system was going to pass through and that the risk of flooding was again high. So fortunately, the rains this time have not been intensified, probably because there wasn't, you know, warm air coming in from the ocean. So we just had rainfall, uh, you know, throughout the weekend, but it was not too intense. So the forecasts are always there. I think the challenge is the interpretation Mm. of the weather information and the localization of it to then warn people who would be in areas that are likely to be affected by these floods. And also the fact that these floods are now happening more frequently with increasing intensity. So we actually need to plan differently and prepare ourselves so that you know we are not caught unawares, we are not caught unprepared. Our efforts should not be too much on relief, like what we are doing now, mm. where we are spending you know millions to give people food parcels, to to give them temporary shelter. But because the shelter is temporary, soon after they are going to go back to those areas and rebuild again, which Mm. means they're going to continue to be at risk. So I think we we need to be having a plan that says, how do we address this problem, you know, this risk in the long term, so that when it floods again, our people are not going to be in these low-lying areas and these steep slopes. We have, you know, modernized our drainage systems so that it can, you know, hold or manage the capacity of increased flows. We have upgraded our hydraulic and hydrological systems. So I think the investment should focus more on preparedness because that's what is going to help us in the future with climate change. Uh, relief is only temporary. You know, we we do this this week. In two, three weeks' time, people have moved on. There's something else. But the people whose lives have been affected, the people who have lost loved ones, they will still continue with that reality. 
So we, we really need to build our preparedness. You had said something so profound, um, a prof, and I think the one thing you had touched on is uh, how we interpret the information that is given to us. Um, in your own own opinion, how would we then go about to educate ourselves and being able to interpret correctly what is about to happen, what is forecasted to us, and essentially uh, would aid us in preparing for such um, occurrences? I think that's a, that's a very good question. My suggestion is we, we need a lot of capacity development. We need to have roadshows in communities mm. where we we. we you know, teach people what you know a weather forecast means. You know, a lot of people don't even understand when a weather forecast says there's a seventy percent probability of rainfall. What does it really mean? Mm. Is it seven out of ten it's going to rain or what? It means something totally different from what most of us think. So we need to build that capacity at a very local level, train the local leadership train our disaster management officials and also ensure that the information reaches everyone and it is in a format that is easy to understand for everyone. So there is the need for translation mm. of warnings into local language. There is a need to train people to say, if you get a warning that is saying this, this is what you need to do. This is the response. If it says X, the response is Y. So that people then, you know, that's how you build the capacity. Uh, right now, we have low levels of preparedness and capacity. Hence, then, even though a warning might have been issued, people in affected areas might not have received it or might not have been aware. Even if they'd had it, they might not have known what is the pro- proper response, you know, to that warning. Can I further the conversation, Prof, by sort of extending uh, back to your particular field and forte, which is climate change? How do we then go about educating ourselves as well around climate change and essentially how we contribute to uh, the climatical changes that we see? Okay. Uh, I think a lot of it is awareness. Hmm. Uh, Climate change has become a buzzword that gets you know, loosely thrown around. So at some point, it, it just becomes noise. Mm. But there's not enough awareness. People only become aware when there's a disaster like this that has happened. And I think the media has a, a, a huge role to play. You know, the way the media has responded, uh, I've been in interview after interview, but prior to this disaster, no one has ever looked for me to say, let's have a conversation. On, on climate change and you know let the nation know what it is mm. how it affects them what their role is you know when we are talking about climate change a huge part of this natural climate change but a huge part of it is man-made you know when they use that term anthropogenic so it, a huge part of it is man-made it's due to the actions that we take as people a lot of which we can start changing in our daily lives in terms of our behaviors, a lot of which we can start mitigating any further climate change. So I think going forward, for me, it would be useful if, you know, through the media and other outlets, we, we don't lose the momentum, we keep the conversation alive. And it also helps to keep pressure on policy makers and decision makers if we keep the debate alive.
to say, you know, this is urgent. We need decisions on this. These are the solutions, you know, that need to be implemented. And also people become more aware and sensitized if we maintain the conversation. So that's a huge part of it, building the awareness. Uh, and as I said, we also need to go into communities to talk to them about climate change, go into schools where our children are learning and talk to them about climate change so that we are building capacity at multiple levels. And as our kids grow up and become adults, you know, they are aware and they become responsible citizens. Absolutely love that. You said something so important that climate change is be- is a buzzword at this very moment. Do you believe that the information that circulates around communities is correct when it comes to climate change? Often it's uh, incorrect because, you know, there's a, usually there's a confusion between terminology, between global warming, climate change, mm. weather variability, and so forth. So a huge part of what people experience is, you know, weather variability. Whether that variability is due is natural or due to climate change is often not fully explained to people. So then that lack of understanding, uh, you know, people just talking about climate change loosely without also the numbers to support, you know, what they're talking about and the experiences to say these are the experiences. Uh, I work a lot in communities, mm-hmm. and a lot of them, they have noticed, you know, some change over time, like the rain doesn't start when it used to start, you know, we have more dry periods, we are struggling to grow some of our crops and things like that. But then no one has come in to really put all of those lived experiences into the context, say, you know, this is climate change, all of those things that you are looking at put together. That is what we are talking about. And then, you know, adequately prepare them for the fact that it is going to continue happening with increased intensity. Sure. I think, Prof, uh, the one thing that I can take away from this conversation is the importance of education and awareness. And so essentially, I would implore you to share um, your platforms, be it uh, your forms of education on social media, perhaps you have um, a write-up of sorts. Where can we access knowledge around uh, these kind of conversations, particularly from you? Uh, I think the university, through our university website, uh, University of KwaZulu-Natal, you can access that knowledge uh, through our website. The South African Weather Service, uh, also has a lot of information uh, on that. Uh, the Department of uh, you know Forestry, Fisheries and Environment also has knowledge. And I think the, there's also a challenge for us as researchers and academics that perhaps we need to repackage our knowledge into forms that are simpler for people to engage and understand. Mm-hmm. So I think we also have a part to make sure that our knowledge is accessible and people understand and are able to use it. So far, we we are probably not doing enough as academics in that regard. I look forward to seeing those changes. I feel like it would be very interesting to see um, how we would meet the man on the ground when it comes to information such as this. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Professor Tafadzwa. We absolutely appreciate your knowledge. Thank you very much.
that was the likes of Professor Tafadzwa Mahudi, uh, who came through and really educated us around climate change. And essentially, his expertise lie within climate change and food systems expert at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. We're going to be getting into a double play and then more and forward with the third hour's content.